right, someone to read verse 5 through uh, 16 for us, please. Titus 1. The reason I left you in Crete was so that you might straighten out the work that was left unfinished and appoint elders for every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, husband of but one wife, and a man whose children believe but are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. As an overtreat, as an overseer entrusted with God's work, you must be blameless. Um, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others with sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Even when their own prophets have said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, so they will be sound in the faith. And pay no attention to the Jewish myths or the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. Even their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by, the action, by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. All right, thank you. All right, so um, we're in the second um, portion of what Jim just recited, uh, verses 10 through 16. We already have gone through the qualifications. Uh, Titus was left in Crete to establish elders, overseers, um, you know, uh, different ways of looking at that uh, word, but the same office. Um, and the qualifications... Uh, for his character established, but uh, and here we zero in on his teaching ministry. We also have in verse 10 through 16 uh, the setting, the context, the difficulty of ministering there in Crete. Um, as you look at, the, at this uh, paragraph, uh, what are the challenges that, um, that Titus is going to face and that the church in Crete is going to face from that culture? Okay, that's a problem. That's a problem. So they're trying to plant a church in a culture characterized in that way. Would you say that's uh, unique to Crete? All right. Yeah, it's only Crete where there's lying and laziness and gluttony. Um, no, it's it's this is a universal problem. Everywhere the church goes, it's dealing with sinners. And so this is not unique, uh, unique to that, but you've you got to be aware of that. But before that, we're dealing with uh, false teachers, and we talked about this uh, last time. Verse uh, 9, it says, He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. 
So the ministry of the word is an ongoing ministry. It's not a one-time only thing. An evangelist comes, preaches the pure gospel, people repent and believe, and that's it. That's not the case. Because salvation's a process. It's a lifetime process of growth into Christ-like maturity, the ongoing ministry of the word. And people's faith needs to be maintained. It needs to be protected. The original faith, the faith in the milk, faith in the basic gospel has to be maintained and protected. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Right? So that means Simon's faith in Jesus as his Savior and Lord has to be maintained. Therefore, you need healthy churches. And therefore, you need overseers who are skillful in doctrine. Because there is an adversary, Satan, and he has um, covert operatives. He has wolves in sheep's clothing. Acts 20, uh, Paul said to the Ephesian elders, even from your own number, men will arise. So there are going to be some people in the midst that are going to be satanic plants. And they're going to be doing uh, Satan's work. So the, the elder has to be skillful in the word so he can refute false teaching. He can oppose uh, or those that oppose sound doctrine. He can refute those who oppose it. So in verse 10, uh, he characterizes them as rebellious. Rebellious. Why is that a vital uh, insight into these false teachers? They are rebellious people. Or, or um, yeah, they're at war. They are insubordinate, ESV has. They'll have ill rules and uh, are directed against the gospel. Okay. So both insubordination and rebellion have to do with what? It's a problem with authority. Whose authority? God's authority. Yeah. They're not submitting to God. And so they're rebellious. All right. The gospel is, among other things, it is to be believed, but it is also to be obeyed. Uh, because Paul said uh, in Acts 17, in the past, God let all people go their own way, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. That's a command from God to the human race. Repent and believe. And so uh, the issue is uh, rebellion, but it's, it's deeper than that. Our salvation is understanding the comprehensiveness of God's kingly rule over our lives that we more and more see that God has the right to command us in every respect, in every area, that he has the right to command us and that his authority is intrinsic to his being. If you love me, you will obey me, Jesus said. If you don't obey me, you don't love me because I am authority incarnate. I am the king of the kingdom of heaven. And if you're going to love me, you'll submit to me and you'll bow the knee to me and you'll do what I say. So that's, that's Christ and that's God. Well, these folks are rebellious. They're defiant, all right? They're talkers, mere talkers and deceivers. They're liars. Uh, how important, what is that issue of being a deceiver? A deceiver. Intentional. Okay. Intentional act. So these are false teachers, all right, that we're talking about here in this list. All right, and they're intentionally deceiving. More thoughts on this, the idea of, their, of false teachers being deceivers. Okay. Yeah, and it goes down to um, 
uh, one place you go to, John 8, um, Jesus said to his enemies, you're of your father the devil. He was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. When he lies, he speaks his native language because he is a liar and he's the father of lies. So every false religious system is essentially a lie. It's a bunch of lies. And we went through last time how the original snake temptation had three aspects, remember? Questioning the truth, contradicting the truth, or basically hijacking the truth, I would say. Using true things for a bad reason. That's what the cults do. That's what the false religions do. They question the truth. They contradict it or they sub subvert it or hijack it and use it for purposes, etc. So that's what they do. They're deceivers. And as he says, especially of the circumcision group. Now, what does the word especially mean here? Particularly. Meaning that there are other false teachers out there, right? There are other threats. This is the worst, but there are others. So that means that an overseer or a body of overseers has to be aware of all the challenges going on. It isn't just coming from one direction. They've got to protect the entire citadel of truth, the entire circumference of truth. They have to see wherever Satan's attacking. But there may be a, a primary attack that you zero in on. Now we have to deal with this, as we did last time, the circumcision group. We talked about this last time, and I brought you over to Acts 15. We won't go there again. But what are these people, the circumcision group, teaching? All right. Just the Old Covenant? Are they like Pharisees in Jesus' day? Just Pharisees? No, they are the circ circumcision group within Christianity. So they're combining what? What are they putting together? Right. So Jewish law plus the gospel. Law plus gospel into a mix that Paul says is no gospel at all. So that's what these uh, Judaizers or the circumcision group are doing. If you want to know what they're teaching, um, Acts 15.1 and 15.5 are the two key verses. Uh, they taught that the Gentile converts had to be circumcised and obey comprehensively the law of Moses in order to what? Be saved. Go to heaven. And Peter called it a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear. What did Peter mean by that? Why are you putting on the Gentile converts a yoke that neither we nor our fathers were able to bear? These are man-made rules and, and, and they're burdens for people to follow. They sound like impossible. There's so many and it's just impossible to start with. Okay. And so they couldn't bear them themselves with putting it on the people. But, but even the God-made rules, we can't, we can't follow those perfectly. No, you can't. The man who does these things will live by them. That's the righteousness that is by the law. That's, that's uh, Romans 10.5. That's the summary of Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. Live eternally. You will not go to hell, but you'll live forever if you do the law. Why is that? And you said that those are even the, you know, the, the, the God-given laws. Why is that a yoke we have not been able to bear? Let's, let's take the most beautiful statement of the law there is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And secondly, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Why is that a yoke that no one has ever been able to bear? Um, 
kind of because we like sin across human beings that have a propensity. Kind of like that. <laughs> so it's like, how, how often do I need to do those two things? Right. Most of the time, you're supposed to love God and love your neighbor? Oh, no, all the time. Right, and, and all right, the first, first time you hear that clear articulation, you're like 22 years old or 17 years old, that ship has sailed, dear friend. What are you going to do about your past? What can the law do to rescue you from your past rebellion to the law? Not a thing. There is nothing the law can do to rescue you from disobedience to it. The law has one function at that point, and that's to kill you, condemn you. That's what the law does. That's why it's a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear. But Jesus said in Matthew 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but you don't lift a finger to help them. So no, that's the man-made aspect of it. So you've got God's law, remember the Sabbath, and then you've got the scribes and Pharisees coming and tell you what that means. And what was that like, the remember the Sabbath and keep it holy? What did the Pharisees think that day was like? Was that a yoke that no one could bear? The Sabbath rules? Yeah, it's crushing. It was crushing. It was overwhelming. It was nobody could keep it. And, and it was just so restrictive and whatever. It was a day of bondage. A day of thou shalt nots all day long. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do the other, whatever. You remember how Jesus healed that paralyzed man on the Sabbath in John 5 and he was carrying his mat? Remember that? He was a mat carrier. That's how you saw what happened today? Oh, you're a mat carrier on the Sabbath. See, there it is. You know, missing the big picture. You know, the big picture is God sent his son who just healed this guy. So at any rate, that's, that's it. But the Judaizers are saying you have to be circumcised, and that's just the start. That's just the start. That's a doorway into a whole life of legalism that Paul says is no gospel at all. It's a crushing burden. Um, that's who we're dealing with, these, these, uh, the circumcision group. Paul says in verse 11, they must be silenced because they're ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. All right? So how would they be silenced? How are they to be silenced? Take out a contract on them? <laughs> All right, if you can convert them, possibly. In our day, it would be the local church Okay. Would you say that local churches are responsible for the teaching they get? Yes. Are local churches responsible for the teaching they listen to? Let me put it this, this way. Are local churches responsible for the teaching that they put up with over a long period of time? Yes. Ah, now, all right, yeah, that, yes, they're responsible for that. They're not responsible the first time some dude gets up and says a wrong thing. But once he says wrong things, what ought they to do? Get rid of them. Say, you have no place here, kick them out. So that's the essence of congregationalism, is congregations are responsible for the teaching they put up with. Does Paul hold the Galatian churches responsible for getting rid of the, the Galatian false teachers? It's the Galatians who are foolish. It's the Galatians who are putting... Does he hold the Corinthians responsible for the super apostles? 
pushing themselves forward and slapping him in the face. Yes, he holds them accountable. You are responsible for putting up with these people. You should have gotten rid of them. It's up to you to not put up with false doctrine. So Titus's role and the role of the elders is to so prepare the people of God that they can identify false teachers and not put up with them. Right? Does that make sense? So I've been here 25 years. I would hope that this church is much more able to identify false teaching and wrong teaching and not put up with it than they were when I first came. Does that make sense? So that's part of my job description is get this church ready to not put up with bad teachers. So that if I die, I'm, I'm taken out of, the, out of the equation, this church will be in a very good place to establish good teaching going forward. Does that make sense? So you get the people ready so they will not put up with, with false doctrine. So that's how those teachers are silenced. They're not generally going to be converted. That would be a miracle. I, you know, I, I would say I never once in all the years I went through conflict here saw an ardent articulator of false teaching change and then become an ardent articulator of true teaching. Paul did that, but it's extremely rare. Basically, these people, the false teachers, have to be moved out of the equation so they can't do damage to the church. That's how they're silenced. Does that make sense? I mean, yeah, if they're converted, they'll be, they'll, they won't. But being silenced means they don't have a, an audience anymore. Does that make sense? So I think that's what he means by it. Any other thoughts on this about a church's responsibility for the teaching it puts up with? Well, it says they're doing this for shameful gain. Okay. And so the church has to be aware of yeah. the motivation behind that teaching and call it out. Yeah, so their motive is money. Um, Paul, you know, identified himself. He said, you know that we n never use flattery nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. So he said, look, we didn't do that. We were not in it for the money. How, did you, how could you tell that in Paul's life? You knew he wasn't in it for the money. He supported himself. He supported himself. He didn't accept money from the Corinthian church. He didn't accept money from the churches, though he had the right to. He didn't use that right. Remember 1 Corinthians 9? He said, I had the right to full support from you, and you guys need to know that you should pay money for those who minister the gospel to you. But I didn't use that right. I didn't use that right. So that no one could take this boast from me that I was serving Christ directly and not for money. I, so he basically is saying, I am an exemplary, unique leader in this respect. I'm not the paradigm here. In some sense, he was a paradigm, but in that, he says, I'm not. If someone comes along and wants to be supported financially by you, you better support him. He definitely says that. Do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. Remember that whole thing? A worker is worth his, his wages. Jesus said that. So, but he said, I didn't do that. He actually says, I robbed other churches. <laughs> Remember that? What did he mean by that? I robbed other churches so that you know, I wouldn't take anything from you people. He wasn't robbing them. They, they willingly supported him in his ministry. All right? But to what level did they support him in his ministry? Was he getting rich on those folks, the Macedonian churches? Not remotely. No, he was basic needs were being met, basic food, clothing, shelter needs. He wasn't in it for the money. Reminds me of a, a story. I love the story from the life of John Calvin. John Calvin was an extremely disciplined man. All right, very, very careful 
like Jonathan Edwards in this regard, but his Roman Catholic enemies, and he had lots of Roman Catholic enemies, Calvin was doing huge damage to the Roman Catholic Church by his writings and his teachings and discipling and all that. I mean, tremendous damage. So they sent some spies to Geneva to spy out his lifestyle. And so they went in and they broke, actually broke into his home when he wasn't there to see, you know, his hidden stashes of silver and gold and all that. And they found the most rudimentary furniture, table, couple of chairs, a bed, cabinets mostly empty, not a lot of food, nothing. This guy was living like a monk. And he was married too, so that's a special woman that was married to him. Um, but at any rate, they said there is nothing they can find in that regard. You know, that was Calvin's life. So Paul was like that too. He, had, he was conspicuously free from covetousness and greed. But these people, and Jesus said, didn't he, by their fruit you'll recognize them, by their fruit you'll know them. And so you generally should look for the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. Look for the worldly stuff that everyone wants. You know, money, pleasure, women, that kind of thing, sex, um, power. The stuff every, every non-Christian wants, they want it too. They're just getting, using religion to get it. Does that make sense? That's what they're, they're looking for. So they are greedy, um, and they're, they're in it for dishonest gain. So do you think that Paul did that? Yeah, I think his primary reason was he wanted to take this piece, the money piece, completely off the table. You remember what uh, Daniel's enemies said about him when they're trying to find reasons to slander him to the king because they're jealous of his power in Daniel 6? They, they carefully looked into his life and they said, we're not going to find anything in this guy unless it has something to do with his religion. So there was no, he was not corrupt. He wasn't on the take. He wasn't negligent. He wasn't lazy. He was a hardworking servant to the king without violating his conscience when it came to his faith, Right? And so fundamentally, there was nothing there. I think Paul was like that. He wanted to just take that pee. We're not going to find anything on this guy. Go ahead. Uh, well, there are two fronts here. We're talking about mm -hmm. a false teaching pastor, elder, yeah. and also a congregation mm -hmm. that, does, that fails to correct. Yeah. Uh, so there are two, two different things. Yeah, I mean, the strongest words on that second topic are the, are the rebuke that he gives to the Corinthians for putting up with the super apostles. He says, you put up with them, and they're, they're abusing you. They're fleecing you. They're taking advantage of you. That's why he says, you put up with anyone who slaps you in the face. That's why he says that. He says, don't do it. Kick them out. But the, the basic logic of that and Galatians and other places as well is the congregation is responsible for the, the teaching it puts up with. That's all I'm saying. Jim, go ahead. And in, I'm thinking in terms of uh, some church structures which seem not to let the congregation have good decision-making options because it's structured above them. Well, they're not congregational. I don't, I mean, I don't know. So Anglican, any Episcopal system or Presbyterian system, the congregation is not responsible for their teachers. Yeah. Roman Catholic is an Episcopal system. Yeah. So any top-down structure, so that's Anglican, Methodist, Episcopalian, any of that top-down thing, Roman Catholic, Orthodoxy, all that, the local congregation has no say in the matter. Yeah. They're not in charge of their priests or their pastors. So how do they, how, 
It's a problem. It is a problem. So here's what I want to say. There are two great biblical arguments for congregationalism. Congregationalism is, at the human level, the authority rests and ends with the local congregation. There's no ecclesiastical authority over them. I'm not talking about secular authority and the right to give fire marshal laws. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about ecclesiastical power. Congregationalism teaches there is nothing above the local church. All right, but the Episcopal system says there is. You got the head, like the Pope, and then the archbishops and bishops and all the way down. You got a structure. And then the Protestant movements that broke off but maintained that structure, such as the Anglicans slash Episcopals and the Methodists, who are basically the same thing, et cetera, all of those systems are top-down. Orthodoxy was too, is too, all right? So the two great arguments for congregationalism are the church discipline statement by Jesus and also uh, implied in 1 Corinthians 5. Tell it to the church, right? And that ended the line, you know, when you tell it to the church, that's it. You don't go then tell it to the archdiocese after that. You don't go tell the pope. There is nothing, that's the end of the line. That's an argument for congregationalism. Another is a little more subtle, but it's here. It's the very thing I've been saying to you this morning or this afternoon, all right? Local churches are evidently responsible for the teaching they put up with. And you can see that in Galatians and in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. They are responsible for what they put up with. And you see that also in um, the letters to the seven churches. He says, you know, remember how he says, you do not tolerate the Nicolaitans, who I also hate. He, he, he holds those seven churches responsible, and in some cases, they did well. They didn't put up with certain teaching. They wouldn't listen to it. So basically, it's the congregation's job. But before that, it's generally the pastor's job to get the congregation ready to do their job. So it's a symbiotic relationship. So as people like me do a good job teaching these kind of doctrines, the church is like, oh, wait, it's up to us. It's up to us. We need to be responsible. In this church, in F First Baptist Durham, as any Southern Baptist church, but here, how does somebody get to have the authority to be a, an elder? Where does that authority at the human level come from? From the mayor of Durham? No. From the president of the United States? No. From where? From the congregation. We're Baptist church. That's congregationalism. Um, this church voted me in as senior pastor back in August of um, 1998. And I'm st you're stuck with me. I'm still here after all these many, many years. But that, the church had the authority to do that. church also has the authority to remove me. If, for, but it has to be for cause. Does that make sense? All right, so, yeah. Uh, I think part of the problem today in a lot of congregationalism uh, churches, the pastor may be on the right track, mm -hmm. but you have power sales within the congregation. Yep. They are hard to remove. They are. Because the other parts of the congregation are weaker in who yields the power. Right, and what happens to those local churches, Lynn? They, they, they die. They die. What happened to Grace Baptist? 
it's obsolete. I mean, there's another church meeting in that building now, but it's not Grace Baptist. So you have to have groups of people that are willing to go up against yeah. the power. Yeah, yeah, they, they, that's a, it is a hard slog, and it's usually not successful. You know, once, the, once the power click has control and knows how to run the thing, they are able to kill that church. It was successful here, but you were the one that took the front. Well, yeah, but and the only reason it was successful here is that I was by far not alone. I mean, you and Jack and the others, you guys all, and we're a congregational church. You got you to gotta win the votes, right? You have to win those Wednesday nights. You remember those Wednesday nights? Those were some amazing nights, all right? Um, but at any rate, in a congregational church, you have, to win, you have to win those votes. Like I said again and again, history is made by those who show up. So you have to show up and vote. And you have to do more than that. You have to speak. You have to speak up. But we're getting into mechanics of congregationalism and all that. I think it's best for members' meetings to not have much drama. And the way our bylaws are set up right now, the congregation doesn't vote on hardly anything. You know, it's just basically elder leadership. Um, the congregation votes on five things. We've been over this before. You know, the budget and membership and discipline and, and elders, deacons, and the church bylaws. That's what the church votes on, big ticket financial items. That's it. So it's just because that's not a biblical pattern is vote, 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 vote on things. Like, should we do an outreach? So it's like, oh, let's vote on it. That's not, that's, not, that's not a biblical pattern. Biblical pattern is godly leaders lead and the church says, yeah, that's a biblical thing to do. Let's go do it. That's how it works. All right, let's keep going. So they're in it for dishonest gain. By their fruit, you'll know them. And then he says in verse 12, even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. That's quite a verse, isn't it? Jim, you seem to have a special delight in reciting that. It's like maybe one of your favorite verses. There you go. By the way, I heard this years ago. Have you ever heard this kind of ridiculous proof that God doesn't exist and, uh, or the word of God or whatever? Like, here's a question for you about God's omnipotence. Can God make a rock so big even he couldn't pick it up? That's just stupidity. Who comes up with this stuff? It's just stupid stuff. It's like, it's like oh, therefore God doesn't exist because you spoke those words? tell you what why don't you go out and look at the at the sun the moon and the stars and look at the trees and some mountains and and then ponder that for a while and then ponder can god make a rock so big that even he couldn't pick it up therefore there's no god and which of those two is like truer all right seems like there's a creator god who made the universe anyway that's that but one of them somebody zeroed on this exact statement and they said this is a logical conundrum all right how is it logical because a Cretan said, Cretans are always liars. And this testimony is true. It's like, that'll fry your brain. <laughs> that'll just fry your brain. I don't know what to do with that. And that's in the inerrant word of God. I'm supposed to just look at this and I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I'm chasing my yeah, tail. Seems to be relishing that passage. <laughs> Who? I'm sorry? Jack? Okay. Oh, Jim. Yeah, Jim. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, all right, so Jim, help us out here. How does the inerrant word of God say a Cretan said that Cretans are always liars uh, and the testimony is true and our brains don't fry? <laughs> okay, here's how it works. It goes like this. 
do liars always lie? Do liars always lie? Does everything a liar say, is everything a liar say false? No, we already said that Satan said that God knows that when you eat of the tree, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. And I told you that statement was true. So liars don't always lie. They sometimes say true things. So this is no proof that the Bible isn't true. All right? It's, that's just stupid. What the Cretan is saying is Cretans have a tendency to lie, and they have a tendency to be lazy and a tendency to be gluttons, and that's just true about them. That's what he's saying. Does that make sense? So your brain doesn't need to fry. Everything's fine. Go ahead, Clay. And you use the word evil, and it, I, I don't see it right here in the in this passage that we're focusing on. But he 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 introduced it uh, in his message today with everything he means, and he talked about what Paul's assignment was to Titus to go into Crete, and he said that every part of Crete was evil, mm -hmm. and um, I found that interesting. But he he says you know. I'm really excited that we're doing this because I know it's not all about anyone else good. And I feel, you know, positive about this. And I'm, I'm glad you're doing this study because it, it helped me. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad you're helped by it. I'm sorry, I missed... Um uh, the one uh, statement he said in verse 11, how they went from household to household. I do want to say something about that. Keep in mind, there wasn't a, a church building in most of these places. There's not going to be a church building in Crete. You're going to have uh, house churches. You're going to have households. And, and churches are made up of families and singles. So that's, that's what you got is a combination. And we also have indication of, of false teachers in 2 Timothy going and worming their way into homes and winning over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and sway by all kinds of evil desires. They're going from house to house, kind of winning people over. See what I'm saying? That's their methodology. And so what Paul's telling Titus is be aware of what they're doing. They're winning over families. They're winning over households with this false teaching. They're going from place to place. Then he talks about the Cretans, as we mentioned. And the point is, this is human nature. The Cretans are just humans. They're, it's human nature. So you're going to have to deal with them. All right? Now, the Cretans that he mentions here that are always evil, you know, lazy gluttons, evil brutes, liars, etc. What is he talking about? He's talking about the population, the false teachers, or the elders themselves, because they're going to be Cretans, right? It's a church of Cretans. So why does he bring this up? Why does he want Titus to be aware of the tendency of people from Crete? Because of the overall circumstance. Okay. So the people he's evangelizing are Cretans, right? Trying to win them. How does this statement help him in his evangelistic work? Jim, any thoughts? Well, it gives uh, guys insight into what to, what, to be, uh, what to look out for and how to so if the let's talk about just converts if they're converted what should we expect about these patterns of being liars evil brutes and lazy gluttons what should we expect will happen in their lives they should quit lying 
we'll see change. They're going to stop doing that. He focuses again and again in two and three about do, do everything that's good. So you need to know what their tendencies are so that you can address this, them over the long term. We're not just talking about repentance and faith in Jesus. We're talking about sanctification and growth. They need to stop doing this stuff. Go ahead. Well, um, and the tendency for the Cretans would be to fall back in their old patterns even after mm-hmm. they set to Christ their Savior. Mm-hmm. But it's an ongoing pattern. Yeah. So the sanctification process Absolutely. is ongoing. And I think every culture has its way of manifesting its sinfulness. I think, for example, I would say that Americans uh, have an idolatry, idolatry of freedom, of personal autonomy. Would you, would you say that's true, that Americans worship personal autonomy? Chris, any thoughts on that? It's their God-given right. Mm-hmm. Just because we're Americans, that's the assumption our yeah. culture lies to us via Satan and tells us mm-hmm. you have a right to your own body, mm-hmm. you have a right to do whatever you want as long as it's not harming someone, it's just folly. And we see it running amok, don't we? Just personal self-identification with uh, transgenderism right now, but you see, you know, as before with pro-life, with, you know, um, my body, my choice, things like that. But, but it's even, aside that, it's just the way people live. They just think when they wake up in the morning and do whatever they want with their money, their time, their whatever. How does that line up with Christianity? Take my yoke upon you, says Jesus, right? What does Jesus want you to do? What is his yoke? Follow his will for your life. Do his will. Submit to his authority, right? Let him be king. How does that line up with the American idolatry of autonomy? There's going to be a problem. It doesn't line up very well. It's good for every pastor, every set of elders, to know what the area cultural sins are and address them. You know what I'm saying? Uh, here's another statement that Jesus made. Um, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Would you say that American culture agrees or disagrees with that statement? I would say vigorously disagrees. Your life actually does consist in the abundance of your possessions and achievements and worldly things that you can amass, right? And that, so that Christianity is going to have a problem with that. Just be aware of where we're out of sync. The surrounding culture is out of sync with Scripture. So this Cretans thing, this is just an example. In Crete... Titus, you're going to have to face this kind of thing. These are the people you're going to deal with. And your elder candidates, they're going to come up out of this, right? The congregation is going to be made up of people recently converted out of this. The false teachers are characterized by these kind of things as well. That's what he's saying. Does that make sense? It is interesting how we still use that term to describe someone who is a liar and a deceiver. It is. Evil. It is. It is. It's so true. It is terrible. It is terrible. And, you know, it's just a, it's a mess. And so here's the thing. It's the most incredible. Um, I was, I was, uh, I like watching, um, when I eat breakfast, I like watching YouTube videos of people that make their own homes with their own hands, like carpenters and stuff. <laughs> I love, you know, hearing the sound of the saw and just watching that while I eat my oatmeal and raisins um, and, and all that. I, you know, I, I just think it's interesting. I don't know why. But um, at any rate, this one guy was talking about lumber and he's talking about choosing this type versus that. And, you know, this lumber's harder and 
Uh, it breaks more easily. It's more sub susceptible to rot, whereas this is, et cetera. So he's going through different types of lumber. So I, I was thinking about the building mat materials Christ has chosen to use to build his church. Would you say he uses the finest materials to build his church? <laughs> this, the church is made up of Cretans, it seems. At least that church was. It was made up of the worst building material. I and mean, you think about that, that is very humbling, but it says out of the same lump of clay, he's able to make vessels of honor. The same lump of stinking, rejected, outcast clay, he's able to make vessels of honor. He's not working with the highest quality building materials at all. Talked about this last night. I did, in fact. You were there, Clay, at the time. Yes. Thank yeah. the Lord. Go ahead, Jack. When we were doing mission trips back in the 1980s and 90s and so forth and all, we did a lot of mission trips in the Caribbean area. And one of the few things that the local pastors had to deal with there was unemployment that was rampant through all the, that area and everything. And they had they were accused of starting churches just so they'd have an income. Okay, I mean so and which was very critical anyway because of this. But anyway <coughs> but the the flip side of that was we were told one time by some ladies, uh, I remember in the news and we were told that uh, that they come to the Baptist church to hear the gospel. Mm -hmm. If they just want to be entertained or something that goes to the to the other churches. But I just thought that was really something that, that, that I had on our own lips that said if you really want to hear the gospel, you go to the Baptist church. Praise God. Praise God. That's good testimony. Uh, I remember. Um, all right, so what's the remedy? All right. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith. Wow. So that's not, I, would, I want you to know, it's not a comprehensive list of pastoral ministry strategy. It's just one thing, but it is mentioned here. What does that mean, rebuke them sharply? What, what's a rebuke? What does that mean, a rebuke? Correction. Okay. Would you call it gentle? No, rebuke's not gentle. I mean, you can correct somebody. I wouldn't call it a rebuke. I, I long, long time ago, I defined it as a, as, a, as a verbal spanking, you know? Yeah, so you're, you're causing someone to smart. There's a sting, all right? Would you say that when Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man, would you call that a rebuke? Yeah. Okay, that's a pretty clear example of a rebuke, all right? And Jesus does a lot of rebuking in his ministry. He rebuked uh, the fever of Simon Peter's mother. He rebuked the storm, the wind and the waves. The word rebuke, he rebuked demons. So he does that a lot. It's a sharp word opposing, you know, what's, what's going on there. It's very, very interesting. So, so how do we understand this within the context of pastoral ministry? It's not something that I relish. I, I don't think I do it very often at all. But, you know, if that's what a rebuke is, it's a sharp word of correction that's intended it seems to bring some temporary pain because that's what a spanking is right that's you know it's temporary pain for a course correction an abrupt course correction how do you know when you should use it whatever how do you, how do you apply this this concept of rebuke them sharply 
Oh, you're going to ask me? I'm asking you. I really do like the Q&A format. Uh, you know, I'm trying to, you know, like, so I ask questions. I don't always ask great questions, but I like to hear from you guys. So how can you, how can you know when and how to rebuke someone sharply? Yeah, it's the Holy Spirit. You're in tune with the Holy Spirit, and it's clear. When it's a clear, demonic speaking, it's the fruit. You're observing the fruit as well, and you see from that whether or not it's true. Um, can you use it however you want, whenever you want? Just uh, every day, I'm gonna. I got a rebuke sharply coupon. I'm gonna use it today. It always has to be abrupt or sharp. I mean, like when you go to someone and you see they're doing something wrong, you approach them on a one-on-one basis, yeah. and you reason to them why what they're doing is wrong. But then, if they don't follow, you're saying. Right. Well, I would say what I would say is that as a pastor, you have an array of options to you. I wouldn't call some of what you just said rebuke. I would call it exhorting or correcting like the word correct. You could correct somebody and I wouldn't call it a rebuke. I think you, you could just correct it. Yeah, but that's not a rebuke. I would, yeah, I would say reprimand and rebuke are synonyms. So I would say um, a correction isn't a rebuke. I think if there's a rebuke, there's a sting involved. It's like, man, it hurt. But I don't think it has to be said with heat or with passion. Let me tell you an example from my own life. This is before I was converted, and it wasn't uh, even a Christian that did it. But it had to do with, um, I played intramural sports with my fraternity at MIT, and I played uh, squash, um, which is a racket game, and... Uh, I was an extreme hothead back in those days, in the pattern of John McEnroe kind of thing. Um, yeah, so I was, I was just, yeah, it was a problem. Um, uh, one of my fraternity brothers um, was in the top 10 in the nation in the sport of badminton. He was one of the best mad badminton, teenage bad badminton players in the nation. He uh, was from California. 6'1", kind of lanky guy, uh, had a very pleasant, gentle personality. He, was, he had a very winning personality. He was not a Christian. But he, he had the kind of, people loved being around him. And he was so proficient at, at the sport of badminton, it was just fun to watch him, right? So his demeanor is really good. Yeah, right, right. So uh, I remember watching him beat last year's MIT intramural badminton champion who was a braggart like you wouldn't believe, beat him soundly without treating him unkindly at all, just destroyed him on the badminton court. But that was, his, that was who he was. Um, but anyway, um, in this squash, we were, we were all on, on the team with our fraternity. My fraternity was Sigma Chi, and we had our jerseys on, we were playing, and I behaved like I frequently do when things weren't going well. And he was watching this guy. His name was Eric. He was watching. And afterwards, as we walked back to my fraternity across the uh, Harvard Bridge from MIT back over to Boston, Beacon Street, he was quiet as we walked. And then he looked over at me and said, I want you to know I was ashamed that you had that Sigma Chi jersey on today. Yeah, but it wasn't angry. But boy, it stung. 
So would you say that was part of his disapproval? That, that's why I looked up. It's also the disapproval yeah, sure. of that. It's also, he wasn't criticizing you, but he was disapproving. He was definitely criticizing me. But he was disapproving. Of he was definitely disapproving. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. But I would say that's a rebuke because it stung. You know, so it doesn't have to be angry. It, it just, you finding that, that cut or that sore in the person's soul and you're putting salt in it on purpose. So you know that needs to heal right there. That is a problem area for you. So I, that's what I would call a rebuke. If we're just going to talk about what a rebuke is. Go ahead. Would it, would it be stop it now therapy? Okay, tell me more. Well, I, I'm just thinking, if we are conversational with somebody, we can be suggestive, mm -hmm. but a rebuke would be directed. It, it's like uh, it, it, there's no... It, it's very opposite. We're, we're in very opposite camps. Yeah. That, that you've got to stop something right now. For sure. So, yeah, this is, this is direct action that Paul wants Titus to take. Who is the them? It's hard to tell. It's either the false teachers who are going from household to household, or it's the Cretan people who are listening to their false teaching. It's hard to tell. It doesn't really much matter. But we know that his goal is that they will be sound in the faith. Do you see that? All right, so before we go on to that, what do you think about the adverb sharply? He didn't just say rebuke them. He said rebuke them sharply. So I would call that like a super rebuke, right? It's not enough to just say rebuke them. I'm saying rebuke them sharply. So what does that mean to you? I think that was it's a significant sting at that moment. Yeah, go ahead. I just like you taught on church discipline. You, they've been corrected. They've been mm -hmm. uh, asked to change. They, and then you get to church discipline before the church. That's a really rebuke. Yeah. Verses in chapter 3, it says, warn and advice to a person once. Warn. Yeah. So the thing with warn, it's different than rebuke. I, what I find interesting is I went through the New Testament and I collected the number of verbs that are given in pastoral ministry. And we have an array of tools available to us, an array. Warning is one of them. Exhorting is one. Encourage is one. So I call it like a toolbox for good pastoring. I'm just saying rebuke, um, I don't know what, it's like, it's kind of like my reciprocating saw. I mean, what is a reciprocating saw good at? Ripping. Ripping things apart. So you want to take something down? You want to shred it? That's what the reciprocating saw does. It's not an accurate saw, but it's good for tearing things apart. You know, it'll go through nails, it'll go through wood, it'll whatever. I use it every year on my Christmas tree when the season's <laughs> over. I, I just love that thing. Man, in five minutes, it's shredded. So go ahead. Okay, yeah. Yeah, and it's not easy to do it well. Believe me, you're going to be thought of as harsh, right? You're being mean. You're being unkind. But there is this pattern of rebuke them sharply. Yeah, go ahead. Well, it's just interesting that it comes after this warning about the way these people always are. They're always like this. They're always liars. They're evil beasts. They're lazy guys. It's very strong yeah. language. And then he says, so rebuke them sharply because this was going to take. Yeah. You got to get woken up. You got to get through to their yeah. stubbornness. 
Absolutely. So it's serious. So they will be sound in the faith. What does that mean? Sound in the faith. What does sound mean? Yeah, healthy is a synonym. Sound. Sound doctrine means healthy. It's, it's uh, related to the word for hygiene. So it is, it, sound means healthy. To be of sound mind and body when you make your will means healthy. You're not, you're not, you don't have dementia. Right? You know what you're doing. So this is sound doctrine. I love that word because I love the therapeutic view of salvation. Jesus is a healer. And good doctrine is sound doctrine. It's healthy doctrine. It produces health to the body and the soul. It produces health. So, you know, when the word of God is taught in a church for a long time, it becomes healthier and healthier. Uh, bears good fruit. It's healthy. The church is healthy. That's what happens. So he want, and he wants these individuals to be sound in the faith. And so that's, it, and it's beautiful, isn't it? It's, it you get the feeling of like a, a surgery, right? Um, there is an inflicting, a cutting with surgery, right, generally. It's like a scalpel, that kind of thing. And there's definitely pain in the recovery. But the surgeon is doing it for the healing of the person, right? It's a, it's a therapeutic goal, all right? I would say that. So the di idea is these Cretans are always evil brutes, liars, lazy gluttons, so rebuke them sharply so they will be sound in the faith. All right, and et cetera. So that's the goal. So all the pastoral ministry you're doing is you want them to be sound in, in good doctrine um, and also in lifestyle that isn't mentioned that way. Jesus rebuked, when Jesus rebuked Peter, yeah. that was a stinging rebuke yeah. and it apparently changed Peter's way of thinking because oh. he got back on the right track. So let me ask a question. I agree. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God but the things of man. That's a rebuke, y'all. All right, how about this? Peter, do you love me? Is that a rebuke? Yes. I think so. Did you ask it three times? Yeah, when you ask it three times. Was Peter hurt by it? Yes. Oh, he was hurt. So it's probably a rebuke. But it's healing. Jesus is trying to heal him. And we do know that 40 days later, he preached the Pentecost sermon. God put him up in that position to preach that sermon. So that's Jesus restoring Peter and putting him in a position to succeed. But why did he ask him about love? Do you love me? Do you love me? Why did he ask him that three times? Do you love me, Peter? what I command you to do if you love me. Okay. He denied him three times. Meaning, by denying him, was, was Peter saying to Jesus, I don't love you? Did Peter bring, or sorry, did Jesus bring that up as relevant? Was it relevant? Did he want his followers to love him more than they loved anything else on earth? Are you supposed to love Jesus more than you love your father, mother, wife, more than you love your own life? Are you supposed to love Jesus more than you love your own life? Yes. Did Peter love Jesus more than he loved his own life that night? No, he didn't. Is he going to need to get that problem fixed? Yeah, he needs to get that problem fixed. Is he going to be threatened with, with death if he keeps preaching the gospel? Yeah, very soon he's going to be threatened with death. So he has to learn how to preach the gospel even when threatened by death by people who mean it and can do it. The Sanhedrin. Could they kill Peter? Oh, they could kill him. 
All right, now I know that the, the Romans reserved the right to capital, but they could orchestrate his death, no doubt about it. And so Peter knew it was no idle threat. He had to get over cherishing his life, and so it was a matter of love. He didn't love Jesus enough. So that's what he's saying. Rebuke them so they'll be sound in the faith, and they'll pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. So we talked about Jewish myths last time. We don't have to spend much time. But they're sound in the faith. The people are discerning. They're not listening to that anymore, the Jewish mysticism or any of that. They're like, no. They're strong in the faith. Rebuke them, and they will um, not pay attention to that. All right, we'll deal with the rest, God willing, uh, next time. All right, Jim, would you close us uh, in prayer? Uh, Lord, thank you for your, your words for us and for good interpretation and pray you help us to, uh, to love you with all our hearts, souls, and minds, and strength. In Christ's name, amen. amen.